Hey, everybody, you are listening to the Divorce Happy Hour podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, the CEO and co-founder of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in New Jersey that provides only family law and divorce services. Joining me today is psychotherapist Julianne Maxwald. She is an individual psychotherapist. She does also does couples counseling, addiction treatment, sex therapy, and coaching, and she is based in the New York City area. Thank you so much for joining me today, Julianne. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to have this conversation because today's topic is specifically going to be sex addiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is that and how do you treat it? How do you know if someone has that? Um, and what was of particular interest to me? which you and I have discussed a little bit already is the, the idea that there are so many men and I don't want to rule out the men, but it just seems to be like, that's who seems to have it more often. And we can talk about that a little more, but it seems like there's like this epidemic of sex addicts out there. And I feel like every time you hear about a guy who's had an affair that suddenly now he's a sex addict and that's the reason that he had an affair. And I think it really begs the question, like, what is this really? And are there really all these people out there that have a sex addiction? So let's start there. You know, what is a sex addiction? Yeah. Well, I mean, you bring up a really good point with this kind of um, split between the genders and men sort of tending to fall into this sex addiction camp. And the opposite of that is that women tend to fall into the love addiction camp, right? Which is super interesting to me, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, but there's a real distinction between how men access their feelings versus how women access their feelings. And men tend to do that through sex. They're given permission to to sort of have feelings, through sex and through kind of more action oriented um, activities. Whereas women, you know, we're just more socialized to be aware of emotions and relationships and, um, and how that gets negotiated. So that's, I think, one piece of it. It really has to do with gender and, and how um, we're given permission to access our feelings. Um, And then I guess the other piece of it, you know, the sort of prevalence of sex addiction, um, which I think is a, is, is a complicated issue, right? I think that um, uh, because of um, um, our exposure, you know, the accessibility of um, finding out about affairs of, of email, of texting, of social media. I mean, affairs are kind of coming out in the open far more, I think, than they ever had been before. And it's a way, you know, to excuse behavior to a certain extent. I mean, it's an easy way to say, like, I'm a sex addict. I, I don't have to take responsibility for this. Um, yeah, that was that's sort of how I've perceived it. And you know, the one famous person that comes to mind, this is probably old news at this point, is Tiger Woods. Right. I know there have been many others since him, and some of the names are escaping me, but it's sort of like after a while, you're like, okay, do you, you just cheated on your wife? You don't really have a sex addiction. Right. So how do you determine if somebody really does have a sex addiction? Well, right. I mean, so um there are 
a lot of, there's a range, I guess I would want to say in terms of addiction, right? And this goes, this is accurate for drug and alcohol addiction too. I mean, there are some problem drinkers, right? There are um, some recreational drug users. There are people who go outside of their marriage, you know, to have a sexual experience for a whole variety of reasons, you know, and that might be at like the, the, um, milder range. And then there are people who really are, um, um, you know, addicted to alcohol or drugs in a very destructive way. And there are some people who really um, have a tremendous compulsion to act out a certain sexual fantasy, to act out um, a particular fetish, to seek out like the novelty and the, the danger and the risk of affairs, which is, um, has more to do with a kind of compulsiveness, like an inability to stop, um, which crosses the line of like, this is recreational, this is fun, this is providing me some kind of enjoyment or pleasure to this is really having severe negative consequences in my life. And I can't stop, even though I want to, I can't stop. So is there um, a fundamental difference between a sex addiction as opposed to like other addictions, like, you know, there's food addiction, you know, mm -hmm. there's like gamers, video game addiction. And mm -hmm. obviously, you know, the obvious ones we all know about like substance abuse and, and alcohol and drug addiction. Are these things all, are there, is there a common thread among them? Well, there is, I mean, in terms of addiction in general is considered a biopsychosocial disorder, right? That it, it affects people's, you know, the biology, our physiology, um, that there's a psychological comp component to it and that there's a social component, you know? Um, um, and so all of those three things can play a part in it. Um, well, I mean, the most common thread, I think, is that um, when you are really addicted to something, you continue to do a behavior despite the negative consequences and despite wanting to stop and really not being able to on your own without some kind of intervention to help you. So for the people that maybe don't have a lot of experience um, understanding addiction, uh, there's a common thought that just stop. Right. You know, if, if you're doing something that has all of these terribly adverse consequences for you, just stop. At some right. point, it's like it, you, it starts to feel like it's just a choice to behave that way. How do you feel about that statement? Well, there's something about there's, there's accuracy to taking responsibility for your actions, right? And choosing to stop a behavior that's causing yourself or the people you love a tremendous amount of pain. And then there's the need for um, understanding what might be, what the addiction might be, um, the function that the addiction might be serving for you, right? I mean, people use drugs or alcohol or sex for that matter too, um, often to cope with other feelings that are uncomfortable for them. So when you're counseling someone who has a sex addiction, what kinds of things are important for you to focus on? Do you, what do you address first? Because I, mm -hmm. I would think there's first, you know, the behaviors that mm -hmm. are immediate that are happening now, but then also exploring, well, why are you doing this? Right. 
Right. Well, in this, I mean, one kind of easy example or, or an example that kind of highlights this, I think, and, and we see it a lot is addiction to pornography, particularly among males. Say somebody's addicted to pornography, there can be a lot of different reasons why they might be. Um, so the first thing you really want to understand is like, okay, what are you addicted to? Like, is there a particular kind of pornography that you're addicted to? Is there a, is there a fetish or some um, kind of sex script that you feel um, embarrassed about, ashamed about, humiliated about that you keep secret? You know, that you that you've never been able to tell like a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse that um, feels wrong or perverse on some level and then wired into your kind of sexual blueprint. And then you discover online, which you can find anything online now, right? You discover, you know, a whole a whole world online that caters to this particular fetish or, you know, and then it just becomes a, a pattern. It's a cycle. It becomes then more difficult to have sex outside of that particular experience or that particular fetish, you know, and that's sort of like how the addictive piece of it builds up. And so if say, for example, I'm working with somebody like that, you know, you really just want to start breaking it down. Like, let's look at this particular fetish. When did it start? How long have you been having it? How do you feel about it? You know, why haven't you been able to bring this up in a way that kind of takes it out of feeling shameful or humiliated? So it's really about kind of breaking down all of these pieces and then trying to normalize it if it's if it's really just a sexual fantasy. I'll backtrack a little bit. The there's one thing about sexual addiction is that um, sexual addiction can often be um, solo act as opposed to a partnered act. And so partnered sex is much more complicated than solo sex, for example, because when we're in partnered sex, we're dealing with the wants, the desires, the interests of another person, which makes it all that much more complicated. When we're just dealing with solo sex or masturbation um, or paid sex for that matter, you don't really have to think about the other person. You're just sort of, you know, experiencing your own sexual interest. And so it just becomes an easier emotional experience to have than partnered sex. So that's often something that comes up in treatment as well, relearning what the experience of partnered sex. That's interesting. So it sounds like this topic is actually much more complex than I had even initially thought. Do you explore a lot with people? Uh, you had mentioned about, you know, when did it start? sort of how they grew up, you know, what their attitudes were about sex, you know, why they like whatever they like, you know, whatever it is that they're doing that's problematic. It seems like a lot of it, probably with most things in psychotherapy is it, I don't want to say it goes back to your mom, but sometimes it does just go back to your mom. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, psychotherapy, right, does have the bias that a lot of our behavior currently is informed by our early experiences, you know, particularly around sex, like we learn about sex. Well, sex is a complex thing, right? It's about our physical body, but it's also about our emotional needs. And so we learn about touch, we learn about permissiveness, we learn about affection, we learn about all of these things with our early caregivers. And that becomes kind of the blueprint 
for our later sexual lives. That's interesting. So could any of us, whether you have a sex addiction or not, is there, you know, and I don't want everyone to start like really overanalyzing themselves now, but could you kind of find evidence of your current sexual expression from things that happened in your childhood? Yes. I mean, (laughs) so Esther Perel, right. She's a a very well-known author. She has a quote that says, tell me how you make love and I will tell you how you were loved, you know, which essentially means like, if you look at your experience of sex and what it means to you and how it shows up in your life, you will be able to, you will see the influence of your family of origin in that experience. That is fascinating. I'm, I I have heard of Esther Perel. She's been on a number of podcasts that I listen to. Yeah, and I'm gonna check that out. I'm yeah. sure she has a book or something on it. Yes. Yeah. So I I didn't even mean to get that deep with you, <laughs> but that that's how these conversations. Yeah. Go. Well, and that's actually what's so interesting about sex therapy, which is a very uh, a somewhat new field um, that people are becoming more and more interested in because I think people are really um, curious about their sexual selves. I mean, there's, there's more permission to kind of know like who we are sexually and particularly for women, right? Like we allow to sort of be interested in our sexual lives and sex isn't just about like pleasing our partners anymore. It's also about like pleasing ourselves and accessing our own pleasure. So as a result, I think sex therapy is more and more common. I see so many young couples who have great relationships who just want to understand a little bit better, like how can we really optimize our sex lives? And you start getting in there and before you know it, you know, you're talking about your mom, you're talking about your dad, you're talking about your siblings, you're talking about how you grew up. And it's just a fascinating kind of web to untangle. Yeah. I, and, you know, I think just from my own, in my own travels and my observations, I I feel like a lot of us focus so much on what's normal. And I'm putting that finger quotes because especially with a subject that's sort of taboo and, you know, not always discussed so openly, it's, I think a lot of people worry what's normal. Right. Right. So how do you feel about that? And does that come up a lot in your your sessions with people. Right. Well, that's so interesting because often sex is a place where we can break taboos, where we can have fantasies about things that we would never want to do in our real lives. I mean, that's in a way how sex works is it's often the place where we can access parts of ourselves that we would otherwise kind of prohibit. And so people can really struggle with the fact that that their fantasies are what they are. So a lot of what I do in my work is really just normalizing people's fantasies and helping them understand that a fantasy is just that. An act that is consensual with another partner is a consensual act, regardless of how wrong or naughty or whatever it is, whatever it might look like on on the outside, giving people permission to enjoy sex or their fantasies and recognizing that there is no such thing as normal. Okay. Yeah. So if anybody's listening and you are already overanalyzing yourself, <laughs> I hope you pick up that nugget that, that well, I'm sure whatever you're doing is probably normal, right? It's not something to worry about. Right. 
And I want to go back to something else that you mentioned. You were talking about fetishes. So when does it graduate to fetish status? Like what if it's, how do you know if it's just something you like Mm -hmm. as opposed to something that's actually a fetish? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as like a preference, as opposed to a real fetish. And again, I think that's probably the range of, yes, I, I have a preference for women's breasts, or I, it turns me on when my girlfriend is wearing a garter belt and a garter belt and stockings. Those are like preferences and turn-ons. A fetish would be something more along the lines of, I can only achieve orgasm if I'm masturbating myself with um, stockings or something when it's, when it becomes more fixed and more rigid. And that doesn't mean there's actually nothing pathological per se about fetishes and it can be incorporated in somebody's kind of sex script, it becomes problematic when it's creating problems in their relationship or within themselves. If it becomes secretive, if there's a lot of shame around it, or if seeking out the fetish becomes risky in other ways, like legally or financially. Okay. So if you have a fetish, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Like if you can only have sex looking at a (laughs) (laughs) post-it. If it's not bothering you, then I guess you don't really need to do anything about it. There's no problem with it. And you know, the other thing that's so interesting too, is with sex, we're always sort of looking at everyone else thinking like, I wonder what they're doing. I would never do that. But the truth is that if people can be a little more honest and experimental and give themselves permission to kind of play around with things, oftentimes our partners find it very interesting and exciting. And even if it's something that they wouldn't necessarily do on their own, it kind of adds to the novelty and the playfulness of sex. If you've got, you know, somebody who's willing to experiment a little bit with you. Well, I'm so glad you just said that because often I, you know, I'll meet people and I don't know. It's just one of those things that will kind of go across your, your thought pattern. It's like, Oh, I wonder if they have a lot of sex or I wonder (laughs) like if they do anything weird. And I, and then I'll catch myself. I'll be like, Oh my God, you're a weirdo. Stop (laughs) thinking about that. And then I'll start worrying that anybody anybody else think like that. You just make me feel a lot better. (laughs) Right. Well, you have an active imagination, right? You're curious. You're a curious person. So it makes sense. You would wonder like, what's what's going on behind their closed doors yeah I yes I I like that I'm curious I am naturally curious but I don't know I think that's kind of normal and I hate to use the word normal I really hate to use that word um, but sometimes for lack of a better word it comes out right so so when you're meeting with somebody about a potential sex addiction what are sort of the things that you look for? Like, could you give specific examples? Like, how do we know if you were going to treat Tiger Woods? Like, how would you know if he really has a sex addiction, as he said, or if it was just a situation where he he got caught and it was inconvenient? All addiction and sex addiction certainly falls under this category. I mean, a lot of it is our own perception, our own awareness of how problematic it is. I mean, some, some people come in and they really feel like I definitely have a sex addiction. I'm spending 
way too much money on like paid pornography, or I'm going to prostitutes and, you know, I'm compromising my health. I'm compromising, you know, my relationship, compromising my finances. So some people come in and they really have like their own awareness of it. Other people get caught and a wife or a girlfriend or a family member will sort of force them to come into treatment. And then it's a little bit more about exploring with them, trying to help them kind of unravel a little bit what this behavior means to them. Are they compromising values that they have? So much of, you know, it's interesting because so much of sex addiction is on a continuum. On one hand, you've got sexual health, And then on the other hand, you kind of have sexual addiction, which is where you've kind of lost control and crossed bounds and or boundaries that have really compromised your values. And so a lot of it is really just clarifying, like, what are your values and do your behaviors line up with those values? And if they don't, why not? Like, then let's look at that. Is that problematic? You know, do you have control over that? Or if you don't have control over it, how did it get? to be? How did it escalate to a point where you feel so um, out of control? What if sometimes it's the the problem isn't the behavior, but the values? I still think that in this day and age, there's so many young women and not even, and not so young women that still worry so much about being called a slut. Hmm. You know, I've just, I have a lot of single friends in their thirties and forties, and they'll still talk about, well, I went on a date with somebody and I'm, I'm ready to have sex with him, but we've only been on two dates and I don't want him to think that I'm a slut. And some of it is not necessarily what they think, you know, what the gentleman thinks of them, but it's kind of what they think of themselves. Women, we're breaking some of those stereotypes. We're still really bound to them, you know, as a society, as a culture, like, you know, men are given, are certainly given more permission to sexually than women. And women, I think, internalize that a lot too. It's like we sexual pleasure doesn't really belong to us or only belongs to us in a monogamous relationship. Or, you know, there are all kinds of myths and messages that we kind of inherit and internalize without even realizing. Well, that one's been around for a very long time. I don't know if it's ever going to go away. Do you think it's ever going to go away? (laughs) I mean, that's a good question. It's, I don't know. I think I actually do think we are breaking down some of those myths and, and stereotypes. I do. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, you know, not that I'm saying that everyone should just run off and go have all this sex. And well, I mean, if you want to, then you should. But right. I, I would just like to see people feel less shame, not just women, yes. but everyone. If there's something that they like, like you said, a preference to, to kind of just stop overthinking it so much and feeling like, is this normal? Is there something wrong with me? Right. Um, Right. There's something really empowering, I think, for women to sort of claim their sexuality, even outside of a relationship. There's a big trend in women, you know, to masturbate. Typically, when you think of masturbation, you think of men who are masturbating, but women more and more and more are buying vibrators, are loving their vibrators, are really enjoying masturbation and giving themselves permission to just have an orgasm or do something that feels good. Because it feels good for no other reason, but for pleasure, relaxation, stress, relief. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, definitely. That I've seen that's, and I think what we see on television is in some ways a good thing that people are able to see like the way that women talk about sex. I mean, I can't have this conversation without mentioning sex in the city. Uh, have you right. watched that? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just the way that they talk so openly about their sex lives and they are, and there was like, you know, each character had kind of a different view. So you got to see like different personalities and really see, you know, what, what are, were their sexual practices and what did they talk about? And I thought it was actually a wonderful for the, the public to absolutely glimpse into that. Absolutely. Cause we, you know, our society, it's such a, we're such an interesting society. Like we, sex education is so poor in this country and the sex education that we do get is all of the things that we shouldn't do don't get pregnant, don't have sex before you get married, you know, be, make sure, make sure you use protection so you don't get a, a STI. But there's really nothing in sex education that talks about, you know, how do you enjoy sex? How do you access pleasure? How do you, how do you negotiate sex with another person? Like there really isn't anything in the affirmative realm around sex. And so thank God we have popular culture and shows like that to kind of give us permission um, and to see maybe a different side of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, that reminds, I don't want to get all political, but it reminds me of, you know, there's some new legislation in Florida not to talk about sexual orientation right. um, in certain age groups. And, you know, whether you think that's right or wrong, it's just interesting that that does reflect a segment of our culture and our society that believes you shouldn't talk about those things. Right, right. That's right. Yeah. So the big question for you is, can you cure a sex addict? Yes, <laughs> you can. Well, and I guess, I guess the question is, what does cure look like, right? And, it, and that's actually very, very different for some people. You know, you get some people who come in and they're sure that they're addicted. They have a sex addiction and they're horrified that they've got the sex addiction. And it turns out that that they're a little kinky, that there's something about bondage, for example, that like really turns them on. And so just normalizing for some people that there is no right or wrong way for sex. Some people just need to have their experience normalized. And then other people, they've crossed lines with their behavior that they really don't feel good about and that have caused them a lot of problems. There's a whole, you know, there's a, a lot of interventions that we use with people to help them align their behaviors with their values. And so it's, you know, it's a complex process in a way, working with somebody who has a sex addiction, but absolutely people can go from, from having very problematic relationships to a particular part of their sexuality, to getting to a place where they feel sex is a healthy expression for themselves or, or through their relationship. So um, I had mentioned to you, I had seen this movie with Mark Ruffalo and Gwyneth Paltrow. It's called Thank You for Sharing. Have you seen that? I haven't. I meant to watch it and I didn't. <laughs> That's okay because you watch it because I'm, I would be curious, you know, what, if you thought that it was, you know, spot on in terms of representing someone who has a sex addiction or if it was just, you know, out there. But me not having experience with that, I felt like when I, after I watched it, I, I felt like I had a little better understanding of sex addiction. And 
you know, I think in our culture, sometimes we can assume that someone who's a drug addict looks a certain way, you know, they come from a certain socioeconomic group, you know, we kind of put them in categories. And I think maybe I did that to some extent with sex addiction. And I think this movie helped me see that this can be an affliction experienced by anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter who, you know, what socioeconomic group they're in, what color they are, how much money they make. Anybody can really have this. In this particular case, it was a, a corporate guy who you wouldn't look at him and think that he had this problem, but it kind of showed how he was really committed to treatments. He, it was sort of in like an AA type group. Mm-hmm. And the thing that he struggled with was he had been celibate, I think for at least a year, he made a commitment to being celibate. And then over time, in fact, it might've even been longer than a year mm-hmm. and he met this woman and they really hit it off. And so he was about to have a relationship with her and it just opened up a lot of things for him. Like he had a hard time incorporating sex back into his life right. without associating it with all these old behaviors that he had. So is, does that sound like something that is not uncommon at all for someone who's a sex addict? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, when you, when you have a behavior that's linked to so much negative consequences, it it becomes very problematic to then incorporate that back into your life in a healthy way. Abstinence is, is wonderful in that it really, um, helps people feel safe. You know, if you just stop the certain behavior, your life is going to become more manageable. You're going to be able to clear up a lot of your problems. And that's accurate. It's the same thing with food addiction, right? I mean, you can't, you can't not eat. And most people don't want to not ever have sex again in their whole life, you know, so then it becomes about really working through how do I have healthy sex again? What does that look like? What, what needs to change? How do I communicate my needs in a way that, that feel more healthy and productive to the relationship? Yeah, I thought, it, I thought this movie did a nice job of humanizing mm-hmm. sex addiction because you could see how this individual was really trying to be good using finger quotes again. Right. Um, but it was difficult because he was reintroducing sex into his life And I guess, is there sort of like a muscle memory associated with it? You know, how you relate to it. What was interesting too, is when he was having stress in the relationship, you know, when they were having some conflict um, in that particular instance, he fell off the sex wagon and Mm -hmm. went back to doing some old behaviors. Right. So um, I don't know. I thought, I thought it was it was interesting to, to well, see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really speaks to the, to the point that sex is really so much more than just how we have an orgasm. It really has to do with how we relate to people, how good we feel about ourselves, how we manage emotions. For an example, a lot of people use sex to cope with frustration, with loneliness, with boredom, with anger, sex, like anything else can be used as a healthy release, or a way to connect with somebody, or it can be used as a way to just cope and manage with certain negative feelings. 
So sex and relationships and emotions kind of all are, you know, they, they get intertwined with each other. So do you have any tips for parents out there who are horrified thinking that, oh my God, I'm going to turn my child into a, <laughs> a sex addict or, <laughs> or someone who has a fetish? I mean, what, what do you encourage people to, to do in terms of teaching their kids about sex? Having an open mind, having an awareness that adolescence, you know, when we enter puberty, there's going to be curiosity and sex is going to come online. So many parents want to just pretend like that that's not happening or they don't want to know anything about it. So then what is a teenager to do? They're going to go, you know, they're going to find out information through the internet, through watching pornography, which is okay to a certain extent. But you also want to make sure that your child understands that what they see in pornography is not necessarily what sex is in real life. I mean, that the penises that they see in pornography are not going to be the penis that they see on themselves or in the locker room, and that the women that they see are not going to be the women that they have sex with. And that sex through pornography is fiction. It's, it's fiction. And sex in real life looks very different. And so I think without being too invasive with your kids, because you teenagers need their privacy and they need to explore things on their own. You want to be able, though, to, to have open conversations with them about consent, for example, about pleasure, pleasuring their own need for pleasure and somebody else's need for pleasure, about boundaries, how to ask for what they want, how to ask questions of their partner. There's such a, um, there's such a broad spectrum of information that we can give to adolescence, but also just even before adolescence is thinking about what am I teaching my child in terms of touch and affection? Are we a household that talks about their emotions? Are we a household that expresses physical affection with each other? All of these things are the building blocks of our sexual templates. And so it's adolescence is a time where puberty comes online, but the foundation of sex happens much earlier than that if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I get that. And I, I would suggest to people, and you can tell me if you disagree, that if you aren't having conscious thoughts about how, what you are relaying to your children about attitudes, about sex and relationships, if you're not thinking about that and really making a, a more affirmative effort to figure out how you want to influence your kids, you are influencing them and you're probably just passing down whatever you learned that's led you to where you are in your life. You're passing that down to your kids. So if you can, you know, we can all look back on our childhood and we love our parents, but you know, see things that maybe could have been done better. Um, you don't do those things better with your own kids. Right. Absolutely. Being intentional, like really thinking about your own experience, what worked and what didn't work, and then being very intentional about exactly what you're saying, the kind of message and influence you want to have on your kids. Yeah. So another question that I think um, perhaps some listeners might be thinking about is if you are someone who you think you might have a sex addiction, what, what should you do now? What's the next step? Right. Okay. 
So, well, and one thing that we didn't talk about is, is there are so many different kinds of pathways to working with sex addiction, right? There's the classic 12-step model, which really says that sex is an addiction that people don't have any control over, right? It's a, it's the traditional 12-step model that addiction is a disease. And so there's that approach. And the nice thing about everything going remote these days is that you can find all kinds of 12-step meetings online now. So even if you're not in a town or a city where you can access like an in-person sex addiction meeting, you can definitely find one online. So people can do that. They can go explore what 12-step meetings are like. And there, the benefit of 12-step meetings is you're going to be in a room full of people who who experience similar kinds of problems that you have. And so it's going to break through some of that shame and isolation and that feeling of like, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm the only person who thinks or does these things. So there's sex addiction meetings. And then you can work with a therapist. You can work with somebody who has experience in sex therapy or who um, advertises as um, specializing in sex. And that approach is a little bit different. You know, it's a, it's a little bit more of an individualized approach. You can work on all kinds of things in that approach, or you can just talk to somebody that you trust, or you can just do research online. There's so much information online to find out about different ideas around sex and sexuality. It's hard to find someone who's, who specializes in sex addiction, because I, looked for you. I found you, but it was very hard to find somebody. And I wasn't limiting it to the New York, New Jersey area. I was just looking for somebody who would specialize in sex addiction. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't that easy to find somebody. So if someone's having a hard time finding someone who's, who specializes specifically in sex addiction, which is the next best thing, someone, at least someone who focuses on addiction treatment. Yes, absolutely. The thing about therapy is it really is a personalized experience. You really want to find somebody that you feel comfortable talking to, particularly if you are struggling with sex addiction, because there is so much shame inherent in addiction in general, but particularly with sex addiction. So you want to find somebody that you feel comfortable with. That's a first step. People, and so looking for somebody who specializes in addiction is, is a good approach. That's a good approach. Oftentimes people who specialize in relationship problems problems will have experience with sex and sexuality. So that could be another route to look for somebody who specializes in relationship issues. And then again, like the sex addiction meetings, the 12 step meetings are pretty accessible online also. Now, do you, at some point, do you get, uh, if this person is in a a cup, part of a couple, do you ever get the other person involved in the therapy? Or is this really something you focus on with the individual? A lot of times the partner will want to come in. So oftentimes what will happen is somebody will either come in with their partner for couples therapy, because there is like a pattern of infidelity, or there is there are problems in the relationship because of a fantasy or a fetish or a desire discrepancy, you know, where one person really experiences themse- themselves as having a higher sex drive than their partner, which is causing problems. So a lot of times people will come in as a couple to address sex addiction issues. Oftentimes, though, what will happen is somebody will come in 
for individual therapy. And then a few months into therapy where they've got a better handle on whatever the behavior is that's causing them problems, they'll be ready to start working on their relationship a little bit more and figuring out, okay, how do we heal whatever damage has been done in our sexual relationship? Or how do we work through some of the sense of betrayal or hurt or anger that happened as a result of the behavior. So it's super common that couples will come in or that couples therapy will be added to treatment. Well, you raised an issue that I actually was going to ask you about is you counsel or coach couples where there's been infidelity and, and clearly you do. I think a question that I hear a lot, and usually I hear this with women, is they sort of have this really hard and fast rule that if you ever cheat on me, or if you did, or because you did, that's it. There's no discussion. We're done. This relationship's over. What would you say to someone who who feels that way? Would you encourage them to explore that a little bit? There's a saying that an affair can either be a wake up or a breakup. Meaning that either you, you really use it as an opportunity to figure out like what's not going right in our relationship. Like, let's really look at, at our relationship as a structure and figure out like what we can, what needs to get improved or worked on. Or it really is an opportunity to just end a relationship that is probably problematic for a lot of different reasons. So I don't think that there's a hard or fast approach to that. And there are a lot of people who successfully cover from infidelity and it makes their relationship grow stronger. It's the first opportunity that that they've really had to get into couples therapy or to really work on deeper issues, some of which might be related to the person who had the affair and some of which might be related to just the relationship in general and the way that people aren't getting their needs met. So the next question for you is, what if there's a wife or a husband who thinks that maybe their spouse or their partner may have a sex addiction? What should they do? And that's very, very common as well particularly with addiction is sometimes the people who are struggling with addiction don't see it. It's their loved ones who see it first, who see the problematic behavior first. And just with all addictions, there are 12 step meetings for the people who are struggling with addiction. And then there are 12 step meetings for the people, the loved ones of people who are struggling for addiction. And so I always encourage people to go get support. If your partner's not willing to acknowledge or admit or go into couples counseling to try to work on whatever the the problematic issue is, then just go get support for yourself. And by getting support for yourself, you'll be able to become more clear about what the next step is how to help your partner feel more responsible for their behaviors or how to intervene in a way where you're really giving them a kind of loving ultimatum. Either we have to, either we go to couples counseling to address this problem or I need to move out or we need to separate or whatever the consequences. I like the way you phrased that a loving ultimatum. (laughs) I I always say, I'm going to start using that, but sometimes I'll say that you're not you're not establishing conditions. You're just establishing boundaries and standards for yourself rather than imposing conditions on someone. I, yeah, I love that too, because it really isn't about controlling another person's behavior. It's about knowing, like you said, what your limits and what your standards are and what your boundaries are and what's okay and what isn't okay. And 
if you really are in a relationship with somebody that you love and they are having problems with specific behaviors, you might not want to end the relationship. You might want to give them a loving ultimatum that says like, look, you keep crossing this boundary. And unless we do something about it, I'm not going to be able to stay. But I don't want to do that. I want us to get some help. I want us to try to repair our relationship. I want us to try to understand what's going on with you that you're behaving in this way. Great advice, Julianne. I love it. This whole conversation has been very enlightening for me. I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about what other services you provide, because we spent a lot of time talking about sex addiction and sex counseling and Mm -hmm. fidelity in particular. But I know that you also offer psychotherapy and couples counseling and also coaching. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could tell us the difference between the counseling and coaching. And who would be good candidates for either one of those? Right. Absolutely. So I do. I am an individual psychotherapist. I do a lot of couples counseling. I do specific sex therapy. I do a combination of couples counseling and sex therapy, which is becoming a more and more popular kind of feature for people. And I do a lot of coaching as well. And the difference really between coaching and counseling or coaching and psychotherapy is if we're working in a psychotherapy umbrella, we will be looking at problems and we'll be exploring it more in terms of how it might relate to your upbringing or how it might relate to your mental health or your mood and kind of covering more of that umbrella. If we're working in a coaching capacity, it's really about skill building and helping people kind of get clear on what their goals are and what the steps are to achieve those kind of goals. So there are two prongs of a larger issue, I guess. Okay. So if somebody wanted to work with you, they could reach out to you. And I'm assuming you have some sort of consultation where you kind of flesh that out and decide together what which avenue is more appropriate for them. Exactly. Some people know very specifically they want coaching and they reach out for me for that. Some people are unsure. And so we'll kind of talk through what the different options are. I give people a free consultation so they can get a sense of how I work and if I'll be the right fit for them. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing very good work. I wish there were more people like you out there doing this important work because you are going to change the world one one person at a time, right? <laughs> one one sexual fantasy at a time. Yes. Yes. I love that. You can put that on your website. So for anybody who's interested in learning more about Julianne or working with her, you can find her on the internet at juliannemaxwald.com. I'm going to have a link in the show notes. It's Julianne with one N. Thank you. Um, So look her up. I would love to have you on again sometime. I think there's just no shortage of topics for us to talk about. And thank you so much for being generous with your time and talking to us more about this topic. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Christina.